Thank you, Pastor, for such a gracious reference to the speaker today. As I was praying with Pastor this morning, he suggested that I introduce myself because there may be some people that don't know me here. Well, my name is Dan Saldana. That's pronounced like lasagna. Dan Saldana. I see I got your attention now. I was ordained here in this church in 2012, and I consider it a great privilege to be a pastor under such a, a wonderful and anointed and gifted man of God, our senior pastor, Don Westbrook. My post, my assignment is on Wednesday nights, so if you come on Wednesday nights, you're very familiar with me. My wife of 46 years is Josie Saldana. She's there. She's my, tho- uh, my blessing, and I love her much, and she's sitting next to my granddaughter, uh, Isabel Barbie. So, turn in your Bible, or call up in your devices, however you use, Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> on Wednesday nights, we began a study on the Beatitudes, which is the introduction to that great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And you see, this sermon is, is the first recorded sermon by Jesus Christ, and, and uh, that is the first one we find in the Gospels. And it's a masterpiece, like I said, and of course it has to be a masterpiece because it comes straight from the mouth and the mind of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So it is very fitting that right after the last verse of the Old Testament, we come to the New Testament and we open the book of Matthew. The Old Testament, the last verse, ends with a curse. But here we find Jesus offering blessings. And, and here in Matthew, he is presented as, as God's king. Or more appropriately, as king God. Because he is God. Matthew, as you read it, first begins by giving us a list of the ancestry of the king. We are then led and, and, and told about the arrival of the king. We read about how this king is is visited and adored by Gentile noblemen. And here in Matthew, we have a prophetic anticipation, an announcement, a proclamation of the king. And we're introduced to the one that announces the king and prepares a way for the king, John the Baptist. And then we are described where he is affirmed, by God himself as the king at his baptism. And, and here we get in the fifth chapter. And we see, we hear the king open his mouth. And address us. And give us these blessings instead of curses. The Old Testament closes with a curse. But here the king opens with blessings. And announces and reveals a new age, a new king, and a new message. Matthew presents the king 
who reverses the tragedy of Adam's fall and makes his subjects into his glorious kingdom. You see, the whole of the Old Testament is the generations of King Adam who failed. But now we are presented with the new king, King Jesus, who triumphs. So he comes and delivers this great sermon announcing blessings, not curses, those for those that will enter into his kingdom. This morning we will deal with with just one short verse that is pregnant with truth. So full of meaning in just one simple statement, but is loaded with tremendous truth. So this morning... Led by the Holy Spirit, I bring this teaching that continues on Wednesday nights. Some of you can't come on Wednesday nights, so I bring you this first installment, the first message. This one, you see, is the launching pad for entering into the kingdom. And it will continue on Wednesday nights where we are, we are taught by myself and, and by James and by Todd and we, we will endeavor to present all these blessings to you. But let me lay some ground over first. Solomon, who is the wisest man ever to live, one day was looking out his window. And he saw some travelers going by, some walking and some riding on horses. And he writes in Ecclesiastes 10 and 5. Here is an evil I have seen under the sun, the sort of error that arises from a ruler. Fools are put in many high places, while the rich occupy the low ones. Have seen slaves on horseback, while princes go on foot like slaves. Prince, princes are supposed to ride on horses. And their slaves are supposed to walk beside them. But what Solomon saw was the reversal of this situation. Those who were supposed to serve were ruling. And those that are supposed to rule are serving. That is what the world we live in now, folks. When God created us, he encased our spirit in this human body. Your spirit which is eternal and designed to live and reign forever, uh, was given this human body to serve you. However, in the lives of way too many people, the human body, which is referred to as the flesh, is the master. The appetites of the flesh are riding while the spirit is following along, walking. It is also like that when it comes to money and to material things of this world. God wants these things to be our servants, but somehow have become our masters. That has been the net effect. That has been the cause or of of actually the effect of living under the Adamic curse. But enters Jesus into the scene. And offers blessings and not curses. He offers redemption and liberty. He offers a crown of royalty. In Romans 5 and 17 says, For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, 
how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through one man, Jesus Christ? Did you catch that? You will reign in life. That's right now. Not you will reign in heaven someday, but you will reign right now. And if that doesn't get you excited, better check your pulse. And so this morning we're going to be looking at that first beatitude. The introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. So read with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 5 of Matthew. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus came to bring man happiness. Jesus came to bring man a blessing. Jesus came to make life meaningful. Not as the sticker I saw the other day that said, He who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? And Jesus tells us that the key to this kind of happiness and this kind of blessedness that is presented here in the Beatitudes is following a new standard of living, a new kind of life. And that is what Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. In chapters 5 through 7, which is the Sermon of the Mount, our Lord is establishing a new standard of living that goes against everything that the world knows and practices. A new approach to living that results in blessedness. That is a deep inner happiness. This is the kind of, of happiness that is deep and genuine. A bliss if I might add, that the world cannot offer. It can't. This kind is not produced by the world. This kind is not produced by those things around you or the circumstances that you find yourself in. This kind is not subject to change by the world or by circumstances. You see, it is not produced externally and it cannot be touched. By the external things. The promise of Christ here. Is that is if you live by these standards. You will know blessedness. And so in verse 3. He says blessed are. And in verse verse 4. Blessed are. And in verse 5. Blessed are. And in verse 6 and in 7 and in 8 and in 9. 10 and 11. Blessed are. And finally. As a result of all this blessedness, in verse 12, he tells us, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. That whole concept of blessedness is not some kind of delirious, uh, goofy, oblivious kind of giddy, unfounded happiness, but rather it is a characteristic of God himself. Scripture bears this out when we read, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord, for he above all is blessed. And another place we find, blessed is God. 
Blessed be the Lord Jesus Christ. And Peter brings it all home when he tells us that we are the partakers of his divine nature. So then this inner bliss, this deep sense of contentment, this blessedness comes by virtue of us being partakers of his divine nature. And by the same token, only those who partake of that divine nature can know this blessedness. Only those that can partake of the very nature of God can be blessed and know this happiness. It doesn't belong to anyone outside who, know, uh, who don't know God. So Jesus came offering a new standard of living. And his emphasis was not on the externals. It was on the internals. He was not telling us a new way to live every day. He was telling us a new way to think first that will result in a new way that we live every day. He was saying that the, that the inner part of the person's life is the real key to happiness. You can pile up all the stuff on the outside, the houses and cars and fat bank accounts, and it never brings any lasting happiness on the inside. Look at the verse again. The multitude was there, and they were hearing, they were listening, but the message was really directed at the disciples. Because, you see, no one outside of faith in Jesus Christ could ever know this blessedness. No one who didn't have the power of God operating in his life could ever function in this way. No one who had not come to this particular point of humility, oh, there's the H word, could ever know and experience any of these great blessings. Only the partakers of the nature of God can know this blessedness. And I believe that this message is for all of us. The promise is that if you live like this, and I promise you it's going to be very difficult, you really will live a blessed life. Sadly, many Christians don't. They have lost their distinctiveness. We have been shaped by the world. We have been molded into the world just just look at the statistics. We have, been, we have accommodated our lives to the lives, into lives that are too much of the world. The world's music, its sex morals, its marriages, its divorces, its morality, its liberation movements, its materialism. It's approach to food. It's approach to alcoholic beverages. It's approach to dance. It's approach to entertainment. It's approach to sports. It's approach to all kinds of things. And that has insidiously, one compromise at a time, has led us to lose our distinctiveness. We have lost our saltiness. Remember what the words says here in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 13? But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? 
If no longer good for, it is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And we're seeing in our days something that no doubt ha- the Lord has a broken heart over. Over all the years since the church began, it's corrupting Christianity. And Jesus is here saying, God wants you to live different. God does not want you to live the way everybody else live. Live my way and you will be happy. If you live my way, you will be blessed. I say again, he's dealing on the inside. Now let me add this. The idea that Jesus lives in the inside with our attitudes and our feeling and our thinking does not mean that there is no commitment to the outside. Because when the inside is right, the outside is right. Faith without works is what? Dead. And there's going to be an outside. You were created in Christ Jesus for good works. But the true outside, the real outside, can only be produced by a real inside. Let me tell you about a keyboard we had at a former church that a lot of us came from. He was extremely talented, but morally he had some dark secrets. And you could tell. The music was great, his Keyboarding talents were outstanding, but there was no anointing. Our worship leader at the time carried an anointing that was evident, but as a musician, he was okay. Once this keyboardist, the talented one, was removed, our worship took a giant leap forward. And this worship leader just blossomed as a musician. You should hear him today. What, what made the difference was that something extra. It was an inner spirit that was yielded to him. It was that he was a partaker of the divine nature. And I don't mean to raise him up to a point of pride because that may lead to a fall. Because I tell you, he's listening to me right now. And you know who I'm referring to. Now as we look closely at these Beatitudes, we see a sequence. Look with me quickly at verse 3. First we see the poor in spirit. Poor in spirit is the right attitude towards sin. Which leads to mourning in verse 4. Which leads after that you've seen your sinfulness and if you mourned, it leads to meekness, to a sense of humility, and then to seeking and a hunger to thirst after righteousness. You can see the progression. And that manifests itself in mercy in verse 7 and in purity of heart in verse 8, in a peacemaking spirit. Verse 9, and the result of being merciful and pure in heart and peacemaking is that you're going to be reviled. 
And you're going to be persecuted. And you're going to be falsely accused. Because by the time that you've been poor in the spirit, that you've mourned over it, that you've become humble, that you've sought righteousness, lived in a merciful, pure, and peaceful life, you have sufficiently irritated the world so they're going to react. But when it's all said and done, verse 12 says, Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for your great is your reward in heaven. And when you live like that, poor in spirit, mourning, meek, seeking righteousness as a result and as a result of it becoming merciful and pure and peacemaking and have the world revile and persecute you and say all these things against you, then you can be sure that verse 13 is true. You are the salt of the earth. That's what it takes. You are the light of the world. You can't, let me caution you, you can't be salt and you can't be light. You can't start right here in verse 13 until you start in verse 3. So let's look at verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is so basic. This is so necessary. And as I said at the beginning, this is a launching pad for entering into the kingdom of God. I believe that the reason the Beatitudes start with this one Beatitude is because it's basic, it's fundamental, it's a characteristic of a Christian. It is the very first thing that must happen in the life of anybody who is going to enter into God's kingdom. Nobody yet has ever entered God's kingdom on the basis of pride. Poverty of spirit is the only way in. The door to the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ is very low. And the only ones that can come in you is to come in on your hands and knees. Jesus begins by saying there is a mountain you must scale. There are heights you have to climb. There is a standard you must attain. But you are not capable of doing it. And the sooner that you realize it, the sooner you'll be on your way to finding it. In other words, he's saying, you can't be filled until you're empty. You can't be worthwhile until you're worthless. You know, I've heard countless prayers say, fill me up, Lord. Oh, fill my cup. But their cup was so full of the world's stuff, you have to empty it before it can be filled. It amazes me that in modern Christianity today, there is so little about that understanding, that concept of emptying. Get rid of the stuff is basic physics. You see a lot of books that are, that are filled with how to get joy and be filled with this and be filled with that. I wonder how a book titled How to Be Nothing would sell. You think it'd make the bestseller list? How to be a nobody? I don't think so. You see, much of our modern Christianity feeds on pride. Poverty of the spirit, on the other hand, is the foundation of all graces. You see, expecting the graces of Christian life to grow without humility is like expecting fruit 
without having a tree. They can't. As long as we're not poor in spirit, we can't receive grace. Not even at the beginning. You can't even become a Christian unless you're poor in spirit. No matter how long you've considered yourself to be a Christian, you'll never know the graces of a Christian life as long as you're not poor in spirit. And this is tough. Jesus is saying, start here. Happiness begins for the humble. Until we are poor in spirit, Christ is never going to be precious to us. Why? Because we can't see him while we keep our eyes on ourselves. Until we see how wanting and how needy and how despairing we are, we will never see how, worth, uh, how matchless his worth is. Until we know how really damned we are, we can't appreciate how really glorious he is. Until we, can, until we comprehend how doomed we are, we cannot understand how wondrous his love is to redeem us. And until we see our poverty, we can't see and understand his riches. And so, in our dead state, we come alive. And no man ever comes to Jesus. No man ever comes, as I said, to the Lord Jesus Christ unless he crawls with a terrible sense of sinfulness, of repentance. Proverbs 16 and 5. The Lord detests all the proud of heart. God gives grace to the humble. This has to be the beginning. That's why it's first. Listen, the only way to come to God's kingdom is to confess your own unrighteousness, confess your inability to meet God's standard, and confess you can't do it because you can't do it. Jesus begins here. This is where you got to begin, and this is where you got to begin to get saved. And this is where you got to begin to live a Christian life in blessedness. There's no room for pride. And as I said today, Christianity today in our world is feeding on pride. It's just feeding on it, on the exaltation of the individual. That is why Jesus starts here. Because you cannot come to God unless you realize that you're spiritually bankrupt. And that the way you got to live a Christian life, you have nothing in your flesh. Nothing. So, so what exactly does Jesus mean by being poor of spirit? What kind of poverty is he talking about? Well, let me tell you, there's poor and there's really poor. There's the poor that, that have some kind of means and they're barely making it. And I believe that that's the kind of poor that is in this country with welfare and all that. But if you've ever been to a third world country, you will see poor. They have no resources at all. It's either beg or die. It is depend on the kindness of strangers or starve. I have seen that kind of poverty as I travel to Mexico. These poor beggars are totally stripped of pride and they sort of crouch and extend their hand out. Now that, Jesus said, is a happy man. 
What? That doesn't fit with our theology. Jesus is not talking about physical begging, physical poverty, but he's talking about poverty of the spirit. There's no better example of man with Adam's DNA still in him. Man is empty, poor, and helpless. Can he work out his own salvation? Can he work hard enough, do enough good deeds, and slip into the kingdom? You think he can do that? No way. He's absolutely incapable of anything and totally dependent on the grace of someone else. So he says, happier the destitute, the cowering, the cringing, the beggars. The world says happier the rich and the famous and the self-sufficient and the proud. But Isaiah 66 and 2 says, these are the ones I look on favor. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. It is the man who shakes on the inside because of how poor he is in spirit. Psalm 34 and 18. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And we, it's repeated. Psalm 51 and 17, Isaiah 57 and 15, they all agree. God identifies with people who beg on the inside, not people who are self-sufficient, not people who can work out their own salvation, not he people who believe in their own resources, but those who are destitute and beggarly. When they realize that, God can work with you. Jesus gave us an illustration in Luke 18. Beginning in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down at everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers and evildoers and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven. He beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those that exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen, if you don't get anything else this morning, get this. It's the broken. It's the contrite. Blessed are the beggars, Jesus says. Blessed are those whose spirit is destitute. Blessed are the spiritual paupers, the spiritually empty, the spiritually bankrupt those who cringe on the corner and cry out to God for mercy, those are the happy ones. When you admit your weakness, when you admit your nothingness, that's not the end. That's the beginning. But that's the hardest thing you will ever do. Jesus is saying, first thing you got to do is say, I can't. I can't do this, Lord. I can't. 
That's poverty of spirit. Being poor in spirit means pride is gone. Being poor in spirit means self-assurance is gone. Being poor in spirit means self-reliance is gone. There must be an emptying before there can be a filling. That's got to be. And this is the way to live, people. Not just get saved and sit around waiting for heaven. But this is the way to live. You know, time after time, when I, I come before you, even today when I got up here, I trembled. It goes through my mind over and over. Lord, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. I know the material, Lord. But that's just what I don't want to depend on the material. You have got to do it. The first principle of the Sermon on the Mount is that you can't do it by yourself. There's a new lifestyle to live. A new lifestyle promises eternal happiness. But you can't do it by yourself. So that the only standard for living is that you know you can't do it. And this is, and in the last verse of this chapter, God puts up the standard so you can realize it. He says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can we do that? That's just it. You have to realize it by yourself. You can't. You have to come to the Lord realizing with your hand outstretched. With an empty cup. And when you do that, here is the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of God. This is it. It's theirs and theirs alone. No one else's. Just there. And who comes to the, to the uh, kingdom of heaven? Who does it belong to? Just to the poor in spirit. That was me. I came to Christ bankrupt in my own life. Oh, I thought I was a tough guy. I thought I was the master of my own destiny. Then God revealed how poor and needy I was. I asked God then, and I continue to ask him every day to help me live every day of my life in that same self, same sense of humility and dependence. And I hope I'm there every day. So the next step is to know and understand how to be poor in spirit. How do I become poor in spirit? Well, first, you don't try by yourself. That was what the monks tried. Remember, you've seen the movies or maybe seen the pictures. They thought they could be poor in spirit by going somewhere off by themselves, selling all their possessions, putting on a crummy, dusty old robe and sitting in a monastery. Um, and, and, you know, owning nothing. But no, that was a fallacy. They thought that by self-denial and mutilation, they were poor in spirit. They, in a roundabout way, were focused on themselves, on the externals. You can't do it by looking at yourself. You can't do it by looking at other people. Don't try to find somebody else that will set the standard for you. There's only one place to look if you become poor in spirit. And that's to concentrate on God. To 
to uh, get in the Word. That's the first thing. Look at God. Face His person in these pages of Scripture. Look at Christ. Look at Christ constantly. As you gaze at Christ, Jesus, you will lose yourself. There's a song that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And that's true. Secondly, you starve the flesh. Starve the flesh. There's a, there's a, a, a famous televangelist that a couple of months ago was asking people to send him money so that he could buy a $35 million corporate check. What was that about? You know, even the ministries, even the ministries of this generation feed on pride in so many cases. We have to seek those things that strip the flesh. There was a time in my teaching ministry that I wanted to be this grand teacher of the word of God. And that every time I stepped to the pulpit, that there would be such a stirring of God that the people would, would, uh, would come and pat me on the back. And that God would pat me on the back. But you know, God knew what he was doing when he gave me Josie. She, with a few words or a look or two, would convey to me. Get over yourself. Just preach the word. So I quit looking for affirmation. I quit craving the applause and just teach what the Lord has given me. That starves the flesh. There are things I see in my own life. First, that I have to stay focused on God and look to him all the time. Secondly, I have to starve the flesh. I don't want to... teach depending on compliments if I bring a boring message I said Lord that's on you I did what you asked but there's a third thing and it's simple you have to ask you want to be poor in spirit ask there's one thing about a beggar he's always doing what asking you ever notice that always ask Lord, the sinner says, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, the man went home justified. Happy is the beggar in the spirit. He is the one who possesses the kingdom. Why did Jesus begin with this? Because it's the bottom line. And what does this mean? It means to be spiritually bankrupt and know it. And what is the result? You become a possessor of the kingdom here and now and also forever. How do you become poor in spirit? Look to God. Starve your flesh and ask. Beg. He doesn't mind a bit. If you do all that, how will I know I am? How do I know that I will be poor in spirit? How do you really know? In closing... Let me give you seven quick principles. They'll go really quick. As pastor always says, the chicken leg will wait. How do I know if I'm poor in spirit? Number one, one who is poor poor in spirit loses a sense of self. Self is gone. Self is gone. It is gone. All you think about is God and his glory and others and their needs. Self is gone. 
You get over yourself. Thank you, Josie. Number two, you will, you will be lost in the wonder of Christ. You will be, as Second Corinthians described, with unveiled faces contemplating the glory of the Lord. Third, if you're poor in spirit, you will never complain about your situation. Never. You know why? Because you don't deserve anything. Right? What have you got to offer? In fact, the deeper you go, the sweeter the grace. The more you need, the more abundantly he provides. When you lack everything, you're in a position to receive all grace. There are no distractions, you see. You will suffer without murmuring because you deserve nothing. And yet at the same time, you will seek his grace. Fourth, you will see only the best in others and only your own weaknesses. You will see only the excellency of others and only your own weaknesses. Poor in spirit, the truly humble, is the only one who has to look up to everybody else. What do they say? When you're at the bottom, there's nowhere else but up. Fifth, my favorite, you will spend much time in prayer. Why? Because a beggar is always asking. He's always begging. He knocks very often at heaven's gate and he doesn't let go until he's blessed. Sixth, if you're poor in spirit, you'll take Christ on his terms, not on yours. You will take Christ on his terms. You don't dictate your terms. The proud sinner will have Jesus and his pleasure. He will cry for Christ along with his greed. Christ along with his immorality. After all, we're living in grace. But the poor in spirit is so desperate, he will give up anything just to get Christ. See? So as, as Sister Judy comes and the singers come, finally, when you're poor in spirit, you will praise and thank God for his grace. If ever there is a characteristic of someone poor in spirit, it is an overwhelming gratitude toward God. You ask me why I carry on so much up here? It's not for show. It's because I am just so grateful to what God has done. There's that lady over there tell, me, tell you what a vile and terrible person I was until God came into my life. Every single thing I have is a gift from him. And so in 1 Timothy 14, 1.14 says the beloved apostle, The grace of our Lord has exceedingly abundant to us. Those who are poor in spirit are filled with thanks. How do you measure up? Why do the blessed Beatitudes begin with this one? Because it is the foundation. What does it mean? Oh, a deep sense of spiritual helplessness. And what is the result? The kingdom, here and now. And how do I become this? Look to God. Starve the flesh. Pray. And how will I know I'm there? You'll get over yourself. And you'll get lost in the wonder of Christ. Never complaining about your situation. And only seeing the excellently as others and your own weakness. You will spend much time in prayer. 
you will take Christ on his terms and you will thank him for it. Now today I want to close just a, a, a lot different than we usually do. Because you see, when you come to Christ, you come needy. I was needy. I can still think back to that day and I'm still there. So first, I'm going to call those that you've never come to that point where you realize that Jesus has never been part of your life and now you want to make it. Have you ever seen a food truck arrive at a refugee camp? Do the people stand back and say, I don't want anybody to see that I'm needy and that I want to come up and get my food. You see him at the edge of the truck, me, me. Jesus is here with the spiritual truck. So if you've never had that relationship of God, with God, I want you to come right here right now. You're needy. You need him. And, and if, if you're not there, you've gone on with your life. But as you look at your life, you've accommodated a lot of the world. You need to come here and lay it before the Lord and say, Lord, I am bankrupt. I need you. If you can't kneel, sit on the first pew and do it. Won't you come? I'm going to turn off the mic or whatever because I need to be there. Won't you join me? Hallelujah. And then at the end, it's pastor's pleasure. He will come and just close things down. Hallelujah.